Hi, I'm Dave Williams. Welcome to Conversations.Buzz. This episode is one I'm really excited about because it features one of my favorite people, Ken Levine. Ken, of course, is uh, one of the uh, legendary names in the world of TV sitcoms. He has written and directed and produced many of your favorite shows, including Cheers, Frasier, The Simpsons, Everybody Loves Raymond, Becker, Dharma and Greg, and many, many others. What you may not know is that Ken is also an accomplished playwright. He's written movies and books. And while he was doing all of that, he spent several years working his way into Major League Baseball as a play-by-play -play announcer for the Baltimore Orioles, Seattle Mariners, San Diego Padres, and was the regular radio host of Dodger Talk in Los Angeles. As they say in the TV ads, but wait, there's more. Ken is also a cartoonist for the New Yorker magazine. That's true. And he will soon be starring in the New York Metropolitan Opera revival of Rigoletto. That's not true. I just made that up. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me. So now you may be thinking, why didn't you mention MASH? You're right. I need to do that. So along with all the other TV sitcoms Ken has written, produced, and directed, he and his partner David Isaacs were writers for MASH. Maybe the most iconic TV show of all time. Not only were they writers, they were the head writers for the show. 26 years old they were. It's just amazing. All of this comes out in the conversation. So let's get it started. Just one thing I need to tell you about. I wanted to start this episode leading into my conversation with Ken uh, by playing the theme song from MASH. But I couldn't because there are copyright problems and if I played it, I would get in a lot of trouble. So um, why don't we do this? I will start. You can help me by humming along the theme song to MASH. Ready? Here we go. Five, six, seven. Da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. Radar looks in the sky. Da, 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 da. You can hear the choppers. Da, 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 da. Doctors and nurses running across the tarmac. Da, 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 da. Here comes the stretcher. Here comes Hawkeye. Here, eh, here comes Ken Levine. What does that song mean to you? It means my career. It was such a, a game changer for me to, uh, to be a part of that show. It's a great theme, by the way, in and of itself. It's, it's just a, a wonderful theme. And there's not a time that I don't hear it even now that I don't swell with pride because that show, like I said, it, it, literally changed my life. Um, I had been a top 40 disc jockey bouncing around from city to city because I didn't have the classic DJ voice. And I was always on the other station. You know, there were always two competing rock stations in a market. Yeah. And there was the number one station and I was on the other station. Okay. There was KFRC in San Francisco and I was on KYA. And there was CKLW in Detroit, and I was on WDRQ. <laughs> so the ratings would come out, and we were always terrible, and there would be upheaval constantly and changing program directors and rotating disc jockeys in and out. And so my radio career was, was very sketchy and nomadic. 
and I wanted to become a TV writer. And I met my partner, David Isaacs. I know this is a long answer to your question, but I met my partner, David Isaacs, in our Army Reserve unit. We decided to try writing. We wrote a bunch of spec scripts. We sold the Jeffersons and then a couple of freelance things. And then we got MASH. And that turned things around. And it was great. As a radio person, you will appreciate this. When I was on MASH, I thought to myself, oh, my God, for the first time, I'm on the radio station. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now I'm on the big station. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, whatever was on up against us, they were the WDRQs of television, but now I'm on the, uh, on the juggernaut. And, um, so yeah, it was, um, you know, it was a remarkable experience for us, a, a huge break. And uh, that song is a wonderful reminder. The reason I asked about it is I ran across it yesterday when I was starting to think about talking to you. And um, it, it immediately took me back to that era. You and I are the same age. I think you're six months older. It wasn't necessary. You're to, pardon me? You're 37? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, yes, almost. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, Said we're the same age. When uh, I I graduated from high school in 1969, uh, the the Mash movie came out in 1970. Um, the theme song became uh, very popular at that point, and I became my I became a disc jockey about the same time. So I was playing it on the radio. You had a voice. If I had your voice, I would have been on KFRC instead of KYA. <laughs> no, I couldn't get there either. <laughs> and I tried, believe me, I tried. I tried KHJ until they just finally said, look, you know, we got other things to do. Anyway, um, my memory of the, of the song takes me back so much to the memories of the times. And uh, it, it, was a, it was an exciting time in my life because I was getting ready to go out into the world. So again, we're the same age. This is what I'm, I'm asking about that particular song, even before it became... Uh, you know, the hallmark of your career. But I, I remember very well being uh, scared to death. I was going to be drafted and sent to some, you know, rice paddy in some part of the world where I would die before I ever uh, came of age and turned, you know, to fall in love or to start my life and all that sort of thing. And that was the thing that about MASH in its time, it was so soon after Vietnam that uh, those of us who could relate to Vietnam could suddenly relate to Korea. And it was the same thing. And, uh, it, you know, there was so much, so much uh, angst and drama and depth written into that show that went along with all the comedy and all the jokes, the several, you know, what, three, three to five jokes on one page or whatever. So it was just an amazing thing. And every time I hear that song, it all comes back to me, that time of my life and the TV show. Yeah, well, there was a definite parallel to the Korean War, which I think helped MASH in its initial run because the Vietnam War was still going yeah. for the first four or five years of the series. We never pointed specifically to Vietnam 
but it was very clear that there was a parallel. And I, I think to address something that you said, I, I think MASH was so unique in that it was a situation comedy that was built around an existential dilemma. You know, you have these doctors who are there against their will and their assignment is to save as many lives as possible in a war zone where the objective is to kill as many people as you can. Yeah. And, you know, that's such a unique situation. You know, it's not, hey, you know, fish out of water. Uh, their parents died and left you this in, <laughs> you know, right. um, that I think it gave MASH a certain uh, gravity that that other shows didn't have. The other thing, too, looking back, MASH was a single camera show, which meant it was filmed like a movie, as opposed to most situation comedies back then, which were multi-camera shows, which were shot in front of a studio audience. Shows like All in the Family and Mary Tyler Moore and Rhoda odd couple and that type of thing. You know, now you have a lot of single camera comedies on the various streaming networks, but back then there was only one. It was MASH. And so we stood out in many, many ways. The, the writing uh, pace of the show was different than, than most shows. Uh, we got our stories uh, oftentimes through research, we spent a lot of time interviewing doctors and nurses and corpsmen and people who had fought in Korea, and we transcribed these. And most of the stories that we used on MASH came directly from these real-life episodes that people experienced. So in many, many ways, it was, it was very unique. Well... It was unique in in the respect that you know you find yourself laughing in the face of of uh, horrible situations, and that the characters were able to bring that out in spades. You know? Well, I think two things. Number one, it was brilliantly cast. Yeah. And number two, the the two real showrunners for the first four seasons. Larry Gelbart, who is the Mozart of comedy writers, and Gene Reynolds uh, did a magnificent job. Uh, you know, my partner and I were there through the middle years of the series, and it had all been laid out for us. You know, we just, uh, the way I looked at it is we drove the car and tried not to get in an accident. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very self-deprecating way of putting it. I mean, you, you, you were the uh, the the showrunners, right? For the or the uh, head writers, at least. We were for, the head writers, yeah. yeah for yeah. for uh, the last what four four years, four seasons? No, we were there uh, for like the middle four years. We okay. left. Uh, our final episode was Goodbye Radar. Right. When Radar left, uh, so did we. But uh, yeah, we were very young at the time. That we was my next like, question. We were like twenty six. And there had been a head writer who was over us, and he left midway through the season. And we, we said to the showrunner, Burt Metcalf, who was not a writer, 
we said, look, we, we can do this. And of course he was, you know, a little leery, but we said, okay, you've got like seven more episodes to do this season. Let us take a swing at it. If at the end of the season, you decide you need somebody over us, then next year you can hire somebody over us. And he said, okay, fair enough. And after like three or four of our episodes, Bert said to us, you got the job. Yeah. So that's we incredible. Were then, we were then the head writers. Yeah. 26. We were, we were too young to realize, <laughs> you know, and people say, oh my God, there's a pressure of it. And yeah. it's like, no, number yeah. one, we never thought that this is going to be this iconic show that 50 years later, people are still going to be watching 14 times a day. We just hope that it would get decent ratings on Monday night when they see it next week. And, um, you know, we're just looking to, you know, do a joke to get to lunch. And uh, <laughs> yeah, That's the, the way you see things is, in your 20s, isn't it? Yeah. And <laughs> the other thing is the, the gentleman who was the head writer is a really good writer but he was more comfortable just sitting in a room by himself writing scripts, having to deal with all of the actors and editing and other writers coming in and juggling scripts and stuff. Uh, he had a very tough time and we felt really handcuffed. And so when he left and it's like, okay, <laughs> now we get to do it. Uh, we were just invigorated. So no, we weren't necessarily nervous. One thing I will say that was very helpful for us was the fact that both of us were in the Army. We were in the Army Reserves, which is where we met, as I mentioned. But, you know, we went through basic training. We went through advanced training. We were having meetings and two-week summer camp, and we got a chance to really know and understand the Army and the military way of thinking, which allowed us to write that show with a certain authenticity that we never could have if we hadn't been exposed ourselves and having not lived um, in the military ourselves. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. You know, of all the of all the TV shows that uh, I've ever loved, and frankly, and I mean this sincerely, not just because I'm talking to you right now, uh, most of them have been shows that you were involved with, and shows that you wrote and wrote and and directed and produced. But Mash, for some reason, to me, uh, seems to fulfill the ultimate definition of the word ensemble. It just feels like there really was a sense of family about every aspect of its uh, creation. You mentioned the casting, but am I getting too cotton candy here on this? No, not really. Um, the cast was very close, and oftentimes they would uh, eat together at lunch. You know, there's a there's a joke about baseball teams that don't have a lot of chemistry. You say when they're on the road, it's 25 cabs going to the ballpark, <laughs> you know? Um, 
And same is true with with television and movie casts. You know, it's time for lunch and everyone can scatter and go off in their own trailer and do their own thing. But on MASH, a lot of the cast members would would all eat together and and they would socialize. And, you know, they're, they're still friends and there is like a an email group of us from MASH, some of the writers and some of the actors, uh, and we all stay in touch. Yeah. 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 Alan Alda has a, has a blog, a, a podcast and I heard him do a, a MASH reunion mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, it was wonderful. Speaking of Alan Alda, and I, I bring this up because I heard uh, a recent podcast of yours when you were talking, your memories of Vince Scully. Um, mm. And I, I, I loved that because I come from the same era, my same love of baseball. I lived north of you. I was a Giants fan. And I thought Russ Hodges was great. But honest to God, every time the, uh, every time the Giants were playing in Los Angeles, for some reason, I would, I would tune in. Um, I would, you know, work my radio to get, to get the signal from what, what station was KFI. Carrying? They were KFI, KFI at the time. which yeah, was yeah. a clear channel station. Yeah, you could hear it all over the West Coast yeah. at night. Yeah. So I would go for that because I wanted to hear Russ Hodge. I mean, uh, excuse me, uh, Vin Scully. But you were talking about Scully and and how you were doing uh, Dodgers talk once, um, you know, in, in the late stages of his career. And he was sitting behind you in the broadcast booth. And you said something that made him laugh. And how much, how how uh, wonderful that was for you. I had the same. Uh, I had the same. Uh, I had the same experience with Alan Alda. I uh, interviewed him on KABC one morning, and uh, I don't remember why. You know, typically it was one of those uh, satellite tours where the guest is on a number of radio stations, right. one right after another for 15 Yeah, I've done those. Now you're on uh, yeah. V104 with the morning zoo. And yeah, now right. you're on with Kelly and John. And like, hi, yeah. where am I? Hello, so we were talking. I was talking with Alan Alda. And what a, just a, what a delightful guy he was. And he laughed when I was, you know, trying to be cute and so forth. He didn't. Uh, and it was it was an exciting thing. The other the other thing is, and I'm really uh, digressing here, is that um, when I was still working in Sacramento at KFBK, doing the morning show there, uh, for for whatever reason, David Ogden Styers was coming to town, and we managed to uh, get him to agree to come talk to us on the air. And he and we we were just doing a morning show, a news show. It was you know five to nine a.m. It was news, but we played it really loosey goosey and talked about whatever we wanted to. Uh, Styers showed up like two hours ahead of schedule. Hmm. And it wasn't because he messed it up. He just didn't have anything else to do. He got out of his hotel. He uh, he drove through McDonald's. He came in with a big, big cup of coffee and just sat down in the studio and watched us introduce traffic and talk about sports. So we worked him into the conversation. He did a full two hours of us just shooting the crap. You know, just what a lovely man. And, you know, my my first experience with David this was before MASH, and uh, I was on the Tony Randall show, which was on it? MTM. No, yeah. I was a writer. I oh. was a writer. On the oh, show. I get it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I was I'm confusing my show. radio stories. Yeah, you go ahead. Yes, yes. No, no. Uh, <laughs> wisely, I was not on that, that show. Uh, but um, we wrote an episode 
Tony Randall in the series was a judge in Philadelphia and he was yeah. running for uh, for office for Superior Court judge. So we had a scene where he goes on a radio talk show and gets no calls. And the host of the radio talk show was David Ogden Stiers. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time we met him, he was as a, as a radio announcer. Uh, wonderful guy, as you mentioned. My vivid memory of, of David was the night his first episode premiered, which was the beginning of season six. We had a, a big party, big first night party at one of the producer's house. And I was sitting on the couch next to David and the show was about to come on. And uh, it was an hour episode. We opened the season with an hour episode. And I turned to him and I said, one hour from now, your life will change irrev irrevocably. And your life will never ever be the same in one hour. And he like, come on, it's just a television show, whatever. <laughs> and okay. And like three days later, I'm on the set and he comes up to me and he goes, oh my God, you're <laughs> right. I can't go anywhere. I go to the market and like 15 people stop me. It's like, oh my God. And I said, that's week one, David. <laughs> that's week one. Yeah. Do, people, do people like that who, who reach that... Uh that degree of, of fame often regret it, wish they could get out. You know, I think, I think it goes both ways. I think they love when they're recognized and adored and they can get reservations in restaurants that you can't and that they're afforded special treatment. Uh, that aspect of it, I think they like. The invasion of privacy yeah. and the fact that people are always coming up to them, uh, that probably, you know, they, they don't like. I remember being in a, um, in a restaurant in Brooklyn with Alan once. And we both went to use the bathroom. And as we're walking across the uh, restaurant, Alan says to me, there's a bunch of people that are all probably saying, oh, gee, look, there goes Alan Alda to pee. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it's worse now because everybody just takes out their phones and just takes pictures yeah. of, of all of the celebrities. Um, when I was doing play-by-play -play for the Mariners in Seattle. We were doing radio and TV. And for TV, you know, I'm only on camera for like 45 seconds, the beginning of the game. And maybe in the middle of the game, they'll cut to me and I'll be on camera for another 30 seconds, giving a recap. Uh, so I didn't think much of it. And there was like one morning I needed some milk and some things and so i just 
I got a bed and I'm wearing like a t-shirt and I haven't shaved and, and I'm just wearing shorts and flip-flops and and I go into the mall to get get some items and people are stopping me. Like, oh my God, Ken, oh, the Mariners. And, and I'm like, what? And like from then on, I had to like make sure, okay, if I'm going out, I got a dress. Yeah. Uh, I, I have to be seen. We would be in a restaurant and uh, someone would come up and want my autograph. My wife would look at him like, are you nuts? <laughs> what? <laughs> you want this schmuck's autograph? <laughs> that reminds me i was uh i was uh i, I was at uh, uh jerry's famous deli in uh tarzana i think All right now with, defunct huh now defunct with the is it really yeah jerry's deli's gone oh man yeah. i used to have lunch there at least once a month with chuck blore and Chuck and I would get together, and uh, one 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 morning, um, uh, Pat Sajak wandered in with his daughter, and he just looked like hell. <laughs> you, just, you know, you take a guy off a of TV and put him in a deli, you know, an hour and a half after he woke up. It's uh, it's an amazing thing. <laughs> Everybody should have that experience. Right, wait a second. Now you move. You mentioned your 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 radio your. Um, you mentioned radio. You mentioned being a disc jockey. We kind of swept through your work with MASH. I want to come back to TV. But uh, then you go on to being a Major League Baseball announcer. These are all things that I wanted to do. And like I said, we're about the same age. I grew up loving baseball. I know you did too. You, I heard you on your podcast say that you uh, you just weren't a very good player. So you decided. No. And that, that's being charitable to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty good, but I wasn't good enough. And I knew that yeah. very young. Uh, are you aware of the fact that you seem to succeed at everything you do? You make it look so easy. And that can be very annoying to some of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I'm happy to annoy you. <laughs> second, of all, second of all um what people don't realize is how much time and effort i put into these endeavors sure and to become a major league baseball announcer and first of all there's no guarantees going in i spent two years every night going to Dodger Stadium and Anaheim Stadium and sitting in the upper deck, broadcasting into a tape recorder, learning how to do play-by-play, -play, analyzing my tapes, getting critiques from announcers and working my way up to where I felt I was at least good enough to do minor league baseball. I sent around tapes and I spent three years announcing minor league baseball. And that's like 144 games a year. And you don't fly charter, you know, you, you do 10 hour bus rides and you're in these crappy towns and crappy motels and things. And so I did 450 minor league baseball games before I was lucky enough to 
get a major league job. So people think, oh, well, they, they gave you the job because you're a TV writer. No. <laughs> um, you know, uh, my first month in, in Syracuse, it, the temperature did not get above 30 mm. calling those games. I had to buy special gloves that I could hold a pencil. Okay. And I'm sitting there. There's 12 people in the stands. I'm on this awful radio station that like 12 watts, you know, at night you couldn't <laughs> hear us anywhere, you know, and I'm doing this. And then, you know, when we get done with a game, I got to get on a bus and I got to go six hours to someplace else that, you know, is also 32 degrees. And then in the summer, it's like a thousand degrees. And there's, you know, nobody in the ballpark. These and games you're, you're, don't mean shit. You're barely getting paid. Oh, you're I'm ba barely getting paid. Exactly. You don't have money to eat, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and while I'm doing this, I'm also writing scripts. Ah. Okay, I'm, I'm keeping my career alive and I'm supporting my family. Now, was so, this after your, after your great splash into the entertainment business? Yes, yes. So I was doing all of this concurrently. So the Emmys weren't enough. You had to go into minor league baseball. I had to go into minor league baseball. <laughs> um, and again, uh, I, I did it because I loved it and I wanted the experience. And I didn't necessarily think that it would go beyond minor league baseball. And I thought, you know what? If it just turns out that I did this for... Um, a number of years calling minor league games. It was a great experience and, and I was very happy. Um, so yes, I've been very lucky. Um, no. You know, I thought I, I brought something to the broadcast that other broadcasters don't, which is my sense of humor. Yeah. So, yeah, true. um, you know, if you listen to my broadcasts, uh, they're different. I I sound somewhat unique. You know, <laughs> again, I don't have your voice. Um, so that's uh, not know. that's not that's not the issue these days, and you know that. But anyway, yeah. Well, my voice was good enough to get me three major league gigs and yeah. fill in on a, a few other uh, teams. So, uh, but again, I, I worked very, very hard at it. And I would hope that if you tuned in and listened to me call a baseball game, that you would not know that I was a TV writer. You sure. Know, that, that I had spent five years calling games so that I was comfortable calling a Major League Baseball game. And believe me, you need those three years in the minors. Yeah. You know, things happen on the field. And I would see them. I'd be calling for the Orioles or for the Mariners, Padres. And I would see a play. And I would go, okay, I remember this. We were in Scranton. And there was this play, and I screwed this play up six ways to Sunday. Okay, I know what's happening here. I know what to do now. And I would be able to call the play 
accurately and without hesitation and not be flustered had I not seen that same play and screwed it up one rainy night in Scranton, I would have screwed it up on the Orioles radio network with 45 stations and two 50,000 watt clear channel stations. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, no one just handed me those jobs. Right. Didn't mean to imply that they did, but you're- No, you're but there are people who think that. Is that right? Yeah, there are people who think that. Well, I guess that's a matter of, of uh, lack of perspective, but you said something, you, you said two things I think that were extremely important. And one was uh, really? simply that, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I really, I really want to highlight these. You said, uh, first of all, uh, that, uh, yeah, you, you were already an immense success in your chosen career field. And you decided you wanted, there was something else that you hadn't done that you'd love to do. And that takes the guts that most people just don't have, myself included. And then the other part of that was, was the, the fact that you, you not only talked into a tape recorder and pretended to be calling play-by-play, -play, you went to the damn games. You were in the stadium doing that with other people around you watching you talk into a tape recorder because you understood that to do it from home or to do it while watching a game on TV is just not going to give you the instruction and the in intense immersion into the game that you needed to get where you wanted to go. Those are important things, man. Distinction. Yeah. Well, um, I had always wanted to be a baseball announcer from the time I was eight years old and first heard Vin Scully. And kind of a midlife crisis thing, I reached my mid thirties and I thought, you know, if I don't pursue it now, I never will. I had just finished uh, working on a show that my partner and I had created that was uh, a struggle. And uh, I was ready to just do something do something else and you're right the only way to do it right is to actually go to the stadium and what I would do was go to the upper deck of Dodger Stadium general admission above home plate but there weren't assigned seats so my feeling was if somebody didn't like what I was doing they could just get up and <laughs> move you know that if somebody had spent good money for a field box seat. And this was his one game a year. He doesn't want some idiot sitting next to him going, and now the one, one pitch, there, there's a drive. It's like, shut up, <laughs> shut up. So, uh, so I would sit way high in, um, in general admission above home plate and they were like a number of regulars who would come every night and they became fans and they would like sit around me. And this is LA, the height of status. You have your own baseball announcer. <laughs> and I would buy them all beers. I'd buy each one a beer. And a couple of them brought binoculars and they would pass me notes like who's warming up in the bullpen, <laughs> stuff like because the bullpens were in a different time zone from from where I was was sitting. Um, 
So yeah, for the most part, yeah, the only time I ever really got heckled was when we played the Mets. Sure. Because we got these New York fans. Makes and they were like, sense, hey, right? what are you doing? Oh, what do you think of Vince Scully? So, uh, yeah, that was the only time that that I was ever heckled. Uh, but, you know, like you said, you, you sort of have to be there. Uh, there was a game I called in Anaheim. What I used to do sometimes is I would record the the angel announcer and then i would listen to my innings and i would listen to him calling the same inning and there was one game they were playing oakland and there was a fly ball to right center field and dwayne murphy and mike davis the two outfielders collided and uh guys are running around the bases and there was all this excitement going on so i called it there's a drive to right field davis and murphy both coming after it oh they collide they're lying on the ground murphy's rolling around the run is scoring you know and i'm describing i don't know you know if they're seriously hurt what's happening they're they're both just lying there the other outfielder is coming over and and i thought <clears throat> boy i did a really good job of calling that and then I listened to the angel broadcast, Al Conan. And he says the same thing. There's a drive to right field and Murphy and Davis converge and they collide and they're both down and the ball rolls to the wall and such and such is going after the ball and such and such rounds third and da, 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 da. And here's the relay and two runs are going to score. And I thought, yes, idiot where's the ball <laughs> that's the important thing in this play you could after only learn play, that in the stadium after the play i can recap 14 yeah. times and i can talk about them being yeah. down but where's the ball right. what's the action what's happening you know at this moment and and i thought to myself yeah that's the difference that's why I have to sit in the stands for another year to yeah. just keep learning lessons like that. Uh, because, again, I thought I had done a great job with, with that call until I heard Al's. And I just instantly went, God, yes, where is the ball? That's worth all the money you could think to, right. uh, think to pay for the lesson. A, if you're hearing a good announcer... He's just doing that naturally. Right. Okay. You know, Al may have made that mistake in his minor league career too. Uh, but it's it's what makes you seem authoritative and comfortable. Not necessarily that you have all the statistics in the world, but that you have a firm command of what's going on and how to describe yeah. it. And that takes a lot of experience and a lot of rookie mistakes, which I have made. <laughs> I made every rookie mistake, probably. So what you were just talking about, um, the need to, you know, it's it's the old, you need to learn your craft and you need to learn all the rules and then you learn how to break them. You learn, you know, how to, how to uh, massage and, 
and uh, become more more advanced in what it is you do. And certainly that's a huge part of writing. How did you burst onto the scene as a, as a writer for a major TV sitcom? I mean, there's, there's, there's some gap in your story there that I don't, uh, I don't know. Well, again, it goes back to, to gaining experience. My partner and I had never really taken writing classes. We wrote a pilot we had a good time writing it. I think it would have cost $73 million in 1973 to produce. Uh, it obviously never went anywhere. And I found out that the way to break in is to write a spec episode of an existing TV show. Okay, so you excuse me for interrupting, but you're, you're writing for TV just because that's what you want to do. And you don't... Yeah. You don't have any experience. You don't have any, any working. You don't have uh, mentors. You don't have training. You don't have any nope. education. No, nope. okay. no. Nope. So we decided we want to write a Mary Tyler Moore show because that was our favorite show. So what we did back in those days before VCRs, if you wanted to watch the Mary Tyler Moore show, it was on Saturday night at nine and you better be in front of the television set. Otherwise, you don't see it. Yeah. So every Saturday night for about eight, nine weeks, David and I would get together. We'd watch the Mary Tyler Moore show. I held up a little silver dollar microphone to the speaker and we recorded it on cassette. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then we went back and wrote a detailed outline of the show. And we did that week after week after week until we started figuring out the patterns. We started figuring out how they broke these stories and how Mary had to be in, involved and how there had to be a sack break and how there would be a B story that would be set up around here and how many scenes there were. And we figured all of that out before we sat down and wrote our own Spec Mary Tyler Moore show, which got us the job on, on the Jeffersons. But that was, you know, we took our own course uh, of, of the Mary Tyler Moore show. That's impressive. And it goes back to what you were saying about how you, how you learned to be a baseball announcer. But how did you get the meeting to get the job? Well, I mean, we, with no with no history, with no background, with no resume, how do you even get in? We we had a a fly by night agent whose daughter was dating David. <laughs> she sent in our scripts, and it was rejected by the Mary Tyler Moore Show. And um, uh, we then wrote a Rhoda, an episode of Rhoda, and that was rejected by Rhoda. Uh, the showrunner of Rhoda, this lovely, lovely woman named Charlotte Brown. And Charlotte is now my neighbor. Charlotte lives three doors down from me. <laughs> and we, we've been neighbors for 30 years. And, uh, and, and anytime I see Charlotte, this is just kind of a running joke between us. I'll say to her, listen, um, 
read it over one more time. Okay. <laughs> you know, there's, I, I know there's some story problems, but there's some really good. I think we wrote Brenda really well. Just, just read it one more time. I think there's some, some potential in this script. Um, but uh, my mother was playing golf one day with this guy who said he was the story editor of this new show called the Jeffersons. And my wife, my wife, my mother, uh, as a Freudian slip, uh, my, <laughs> right. my mother said, oh, my son is a writer. And, uh, and he's like, oh, Christ. And he said, <laughs> all right, just, just have him call me. So I call him up and he goes, do you have a script? And I said, yeah, we do. And he says, send the script. If I like the script, we'll invite you guys in to pitch story ideas. I, okay. And I sent him the Mary Tyler Moore script and he called up and said, yeah, this is a good script. Okay, come on in and, and pitch stories. We pitched, you could only pitch three stories at a time there. We pitched three stories. They liked them. They liked one of them. They took it to the producers and the producers passed. And he called again and said, you know, you can pitch three more. And we pitched three more and they liked one. And this time the producers liked one. And so we got our first assignment. Just amazing stuff. Yeah. I could talk with you about this forever, but uh, we're not going to because we both have other things to do. But uh, there are a couple of things I want to get to. And uh, one is the fact that as I looked at your IMDb page today, the Internet Movie Database, <coughs> which is, uh, you know, essentially. Oh, is that what that means? The online, uh, it's the online. Yeah, I know, uh, I know what it is. I resume, know, IMDb. It's like, okay. Yeah, well, I know, I know. I you know, know what it, what it is. For. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you know, I look at this huge list of achievements and um, and awards and the fabulous, the, just the list of shows that you've worked on. You've been head writer. You've been director. You've been producer, and so forth. And it seems at the last date that I could find, and maybe it's. The website's problem but the last date that i could find was uh, in 2004 and this was uh uh frazier i guess wrapping up frazier what have you been doing since then in terms of your own personal work i'm not saying you know uh you know what happened did you quit did you you know get thrown out of the well, business? we had a couple of pilots after after frazier um and uh our last pilot was for usa probably five, six years ago, but I've been writing plays. I've been a, been a playwright. I have eight published plays um, that have been done around the world. Right. And I have a podcast, Hollywood and Levine. Yep. And I, um, I had a blog I just ended it, but I yeah, I know you just ended it. That was like that was one of the wrong fifteen years. I was going to say longest running blog that uh, and highly highly regarded in the in yeah the yeah blog it world. was it was really fun for the first uh, thirteen, and then the last couple were like oh god, uh, so I finally ended that and um, new career. <laughs> I'm a contributing cartoonist to the New Yorker. Of course, yeah. of course you are. This is yeah. like the. I'm going to send this doodle into the New Yorker. Oh, okay. They took it. Great. Yeah. No. And here again, <laughs> I had been doing cartooning 
since the time I was little. And, uh, and I was a pretty good cartoonist. I reached a point when I started getting involved in staff work and television, which is 50, 60 hours a week. And then I had kids. There was like no time for cartooning. And I stopped cartooning for like 30, 40 years. And um, last year, I got connected with a New Yorker cartoonist, Julia Suits, who's a wonderful artist and lives in Austin, lives in Texas, actually. And, um, and I said to her, you know, I've always wanted to get a cartoon in the New Yorker. And she says, well, you know, they're kind of expanding these days, you know, um, if you're serious. I said, okay. And um, she says, let me see something you've drawn. And I showed her something from 1973. And she said, yeah, you know, you're good. So I figured, all right, this is going to be like uh, getting on a bicycle. You know, I just picked up a pencil and it's all going to come back. No, it didn't. It didn't come back at all. And I spent like four or five months basically going to cartoon boot camp. I would draw every day, all day long, and I would send her the stuff. And she was great because she was tough. And she would say, the perspective is wrong and the heads are too big. And this is wrong, and wow. the anatomy is wrong, and this is a, do it again, do it again, do it again. This is, you know, um, this looks like this guy's floating in the air. This is a, and and so before I even would attempt to submit to the New Yorker, God, I must have drawn hundreds of drawings before I felt I was even even capable. And I look back at those first drawings that I submitted and I go, God, <laughs> this is terrible. I, I, I wouldn't submit them now. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've been lucky. I've sold three cartoons to The New Yorker in the first year. But here's the thing. Uh, you have to submit 10 a week. So... For every cartoon you get in, there's a hundred that I come up with, the gags that I draw, that I send in, that get rejected. And it's that way with, with all cartoonists. And it's very and, specific to the publication, right? I mean, you have yes, to have the they, right voice. Yes, you have to have the right voice. And it's kind of shooting at a moving target, you know, uh, and you don't want to imitate someone else's style and you don't want to imitate the type of jokes that that they do. Um, and, you know, I'm always looking to improve my drawings. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, if people want to see some of my my cartoons. Um, but you have to come up with 10 worthy cartoons a week and draw them and send them in. And there's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of weeks I'll send in my 10 and they don't pick any of them. 
I got to just send in 10 more the next week and send in 10 more the week after that. And, you know, uh, there's lots and lots of rejection. You just have to be very resilient. And part of what they want to see in the New Yorker is, um, are you, are you proficient? Are you somebody that we can count on for coming up with 10 gags week after week after week? Or does it take you a year to come up with a batch of 10? Um, so, you know, it's part of an initiation. And I sold three this first year, which is wrapping up. And hopefully next year I'll sell six or seven, okay. uh, you know. Um, but again, people go, oh, man, look at that. Like you said, you just do a doodle and you get in the New Yorker. <laughs> no, I've had 300 rejected cartoons. <laughs> well, out of putting it to you that way, I got exactly what I wanted out of you. And, you, and again, you know, the, the, uh, uh, I think the, the most important thing that we learn from you is the hard-headed dedication the uh, you know just never stopping most of us will try something like that it's like uh uh you know i've written a book i've written a a, a novel well i haven't written a novel i started the novel 33 years ago and uh it's going pretty well we're up to 300 pages now i figure another 25 years i probably will have novel length book here <laughs> you know but people like you just go okay here's what i need to do and i'm going to do it and i'm just going to do it over and over and over and over again until i've gone past all of the lessons i've gone past all of the writers groups where the wannabes get together and tell each other what they think about each other's work so you're learning from people who don't know any more than you know it's like it always struck me as as uh it's like when you're playing golf and your buddy who is uh, regularly swinging a 110 uh, starts talking to you about your stance. It's like, maybe I should just try to figure this out myself. And you just take it one step at a time, one little step at a time, uh, learning as you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I, I then went and I studied other cartoonists and went back and looked at lots of, of other cartoons and got to know some of the some of the cartoonists. It's fun because there are a number of cartoonists uh, who live in LA, New Yorker cartoonists, and we get together once a month and we talk about cartooning and you know and I I learn from them. Um, you know the other learning experience is Photoshop. <laughs> you know uh, where the cartoonists now well we we put our stuff on photoshop and you know you can uh touch things up and you can move things around and stuff like that and it's like uh, how do you do that yeah so that was a whole uh you know learning exercise as well and and i keep improving and i i hope that my drawings are uh better in a year than they are now and there's some of my early drawings that I think the gags were really good, where I'm just totally redrawing it now because it's like, uh, I wouldn't send that in. That was awful. All right, well, I, I need to help wrap this up, but I gotta go back to 
my original idea when I contacted you a couple of three months ago was to talk to you about something I've wanted to talk to you about for some time, because this is something that I'm starting to recognize in my own career in life. And that is uh, what people refer to as ageism in, in the entertainment field. I think you were, you made a great list. I just uh, ran across this morning of, 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 of the stack of how people, uh, the entertainment ladder, I guess, you know, it's like you've got great actors at the top and great singers and so forth. You get down to radio is uh, number five on the ladder. And, uh, oh, I think just ahead of that is mimes. Um, so, you know, you're... you're Shadow puppets, yeah. Yeah, right. So, but when I had... Uh, I want to take you back to Seattle here for a second. 11 years ago, I was out of work. I was between L.A. and, and Dallas before the Dallas job came up. So I went to Seattle, and I talked with the uh, program director at... Uh, at uh, Como, and we had a nice long talk, and he introduced me to his boss, and they, they had an opening in the morning show, and uh, they were really impressed, and we were all getting along great. They took me to lunch, and they introduced me to somebody else, and then they said, hey, can you, can you stay over tonight? We'll put you up in the hotel across the street. We'll have you come back tomorrow. We want you to meet some of the, some of the bigwigs. I said, great. That's great. Yeah, happy to. I went back, went, checked into the hotel and I called my wife and I said, hey, they want me to stay over. This looks good. Looks like something's going to happen here. And uh, next next day we went through the meetings. And then as I was headed to the airport, uh, program director said, I'll give you a call in a little bit. I got to the airport. I'm waiting for my flight. Phone rings and he says, man, I got to tell you, I'm really bummed. We really wanted you, but uh, um, upstairs they decided that you're too old. I said, you didn't just say that, really. <laughs> Did you just tell me I'm too old to give the... He said, well, you know, they want somebody who's going to be able to stick around for, you know, maybe at least 10 years. This was 12 years ago, 11 years ago. And I said, okay, I'm not, in, I'm not insulted by that. And I actually have some thoughts about it. But I said, let me just give you a little piece of advice. Do not ever say something like that to anybody again. Um, and, I, and I don't think he has. My feeling about it was, in my particular profession, that uh, radio is, uh, is, is something that requires an awareness of the world uh, today, you know, being able to re relate and uh, stay relevant, at least to the point of being able to admit you're not relevant in certain ways and so forth. But my experience with what little writing I've done, uh, playwriting and so forth, it's like when I first started writing plays, I would try to enter uh, competitions and find out, oh, this one's only open to young playwrights up to the age of 30 or something like that. I go, well, you have no idea how old I am. I'm going to send you my material and you decide. And then they send back all these these. Uh, questionnaires about about uh, your past and they you know they're essentially trying to suss out how old you are and that was really really annoying to me for a while so I'm looking at your career at the highest level of the entertainment industry and wonder how a guy uh, who goes from being head writer at MASH and winning Emmys for Frasier and Cheers uh, you know how do you? How does it end up that you're not writing TV shows now? Okay, uh, that was a really it, long question, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
partly I don't want to. Partly there's no shows on television that I really kind of want to watch, uh, that I really want to write for. And I feel I don't have anything to prove. Mm. And second of all, there is definitely ageism. Um, I tell this story um, like about you know, 15 years or so ago, maybe more. Um, the president of ABC took my partner and I out to lunch and said, please bring your next show to ABC. Um, and uh, so now you flash forward and this is before the pandemic. So like maybe four or five years ago. And there is a pilot, a multi-camera pilot for Carol Burnett that Carol Burnett starring in. It was Amy Poehler's com company. She's a doll, by the way, she's great. So I helped out on it. I worked on staff for a, a few nights, pitching jokes and stuff like that. One of my jokes, Carol Burnett got a big laugh and applause. It's like, wow, Carol Burnett did one of my jokes. Um, so, the the creator of the show, who's also the showrunner, calls me uh, a couple of days later and says, if this show goes, would you want to be a part of it? And I said, I don't want to work full time. I'm tired of working 60 hours a week. No. Uh, if you want a guy to come in one or two nights a week, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to write episodes for you. I'm happy to direct episodes. I just don't want to do full-time. And he goes, okay, fair enough. Um, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, of course. Okay. So he calls me up later that day and he goes, okay, this is kind of awkward. I said, yeah. He goes, uh, ABC wants a writing sample. People okay. have never heard of you or Matt. Okay. People All who are right. watching Cheers from their cribs. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Want a writing sample. <laughs> and I said, I have many, I have full-length plays. I have plenty of writing samples. I said, tell ABC, here's my writing sample. Go watch Cheers or go fuck yourself. <laughs> That's my writing sample. <laughs> okay. And he calls back the next day and he goes, he goes, excuse me, okay, you've been approved. I, oh, I'm, I'm so relieved. The show didn't go. Why do you think the show didn't go? <laughs> Carol Burnett, it's too old. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's some 25-year-old Bryn Mawr graduate who has no idea who I am or, or what I wrote. Uh, so, yeah, the, the ageism certainly does exist yeah you know the thing about it is and it's almost frustrating is <clears throat> when you get to the point where you realize that you get to you're also at the very philosophical point of your your life and you just go yeah whatever right it's yeah. just it's okay i'm doing okay from here i don't need yeah. to go back and prove my entire life i don't need to right. defend my life right yeah and four of my shows are rerunning tonight on various cable channels. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, man. Tell me a little bit about your family. 
I know you've got a son named Matt. You have a daughter yeah. whose name I have forgotten, but you, you wrote it. Yeah, you put her in your blog very often. I yeah. think you're a grandfather now. So, I am. you know, just to round out your your persona here for the sake of per, uh, podcast listeners, tell us about your family. Uh, well, I've been married 43 years. Um, my son, Matt, uh, is um, a manager of several teams at Apple. Um, I mean, he's this computer whiz. And if he didn't look just like me, I'd want a DNA test because I don't know where he gets <laughs> it because I'm, I'm terrible. Um, and they have a, a gorgeous six-year-old, Rebecca. And my daughter, Annie, is a comedy writer. She really? and her husband, partner, John, um, are the co-executive producers currently of the Upshaws which is the number one cable, not cable, streaming comedy. It's on Netflix with Wanda Sykes and Mike Epps and Kim Fields. Right. And, um, and they just had a, a baby. She will be seven months old, Charlotte. No. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's all uh, welcoming every sunrise for you, right? That's the way I feel about it. It's like I've had, yeah. a, I've, I've had a great life and every single morning is a gift. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> My son is a huge, huge fan of yours. I told him that I was going to be talking with you today and he actually fired off a couple of TV questions. As long as you're here, let me read them to you. Give me the answers. Okay. I'll try to squeeze them in. A uh, question about Cheers. He said, in regards to the timing of Shelley Long leaving the show, the fifth season seems to be in two parts with the first part, not knowing what to do with Diane. The marriage subplot picks up about halfway through end of season four is a cliffhanger where we see Sam propose to someone over the phone. So here are my questions. When did Shelley Long first start talking about leaving the show? When did uh, they, the plan to write her out begin and how did that go down? Um. Well, she had a deal for five years and she was making noise in that fifth season about possibly leaving. So we knew that there was a possibility. It's not like two weeks before the season ended that she just sucker punched us and said, I'm not coming back. Uh, so um, we kind of had some, you know, uh, inclination of it um, going in. And so that's that's kind of how that worked out. So you had, had time to plot it out. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. All right. The other question was, and this is good stuff here. He wrote, and I've wondered this too. He said, these days, especially with the streaming platforms, serial shows are very popular where the season or even the series tells a full story and builds off the prior episode. But uh, they have a variety of directors and writers. How do they keep the tone and feel of the show consistent? I assume that the showrunner maintains consistency with writers who sometimes take turns getting credits, but directing is a whole different animal. How does that work? Yeah, well, how does that work when you've got different directors from episode to episode and you're trying to- There, are, there are tone meetings. They're called tone meetings. And the director will sit with the showrunner 
who will go over the tone that he wants, the kind of shots that he wants, um, what he likes, what he doesn't like. Um, so that is, is pretty well established. Plus the, the director of comedy, director of comedy, dir the director of photography, uh, who is there all the time is also very helpful mm. and will also say to the uh, director, no, no, you put the camera here, you know, do, you know, do, do it this way. This is how, this is how they like to do it. Um, and they'll talk about how, how long it should take to film certain things. You know, it's like, okay, this cast, you pretty much, you can get about four or five takes from this cast, you know, mm -hmm. don't be doing nine takes of <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are, there are tone meetings and, you know, the shows may all look the same to you, yeah. but um, to us on MASH, um, you know, there are directors we use who just didn't work out. We do the best we can in editing, but there are episodes where, you know, you're just going, uh, okay, this is really clunky, um, yeah. you know, yeah. And especially yeah. for single camera shows, multi-camera show, you can have the same director the whole year. But single camera shows, you need to prep. You need a couple of days to, to prep. So you need to have like at least two or three, you know, rotating directors who you like. And it's tough sometimes because um, you are kind of auditioning guys, you know, some work out and, and some don't. So, um, and you get that in multi-camera too, to a certain extent. All right. Um, I am going to let you go. I doubt you start leading me down these paths of the other areas I'd like to talk about in terms of writing, in terms of dialogue and, and catching the voice and the pacing and all that stuff. But we're going to put that off for another time and hopefully there, there will be one and maybe we can schedule you know, a shorter version. But thank you so much for your time. My today. pleasure. How's your playwriting coming along? I have uh, not done a darn thing since I got here. I, that's not true. I wrote a, I wrote a comedy a year or two ago. It was almost, it was sort of on, uh, uh, it was sort of commissioned with a theater in Sacramento where I'm from and where people know my work. And, uh, and I didn't, I wasn't pleased with it. I guess it, you know, it played well enough. But uh, fact of the matter is the longer I've been away from the theater myself where I'm not going in, I'm not on stage, I'm not directing, I'm not personally involved. The writing of it gets very difficult for me to, just sit down and hammer out. And the other part of that is that I'm, you know, 71 years old and still getting up at 2.30 in the morning. So <laughs> I have to find a way to stop doing that. Yeah. All right. Well, All right. thanks, bud. No, thank you. Seriously. All right. I'll let you know when this is put together. I'll send you a preview and uh, great. you can torture yourself with that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Ken. Okay. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay.